0: If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 3 today. We, we started in verses 1 and 2 last week. We're going to focus now on while Paul is encouraging the church and how to practically live out an imitation of Christ. If you're able to stand, let's do so as we read God's Word. Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 5. Paul says, as he writes in Inspiration of the Holy Spirit, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this: that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, or who is covetous—that is an idolater—has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And as we read these verses, Lord, sometimes we can become very legalistic. And that's what is not the focus here. Lord, you're showing us what it looks like to imitate Christ. What it means to walk as Christ walked, to live as Christ lived, to be as Christ was and is. Lord, as we read these verses, I pray, Lord, that you would stir in us an examination of our hearts and our soul. If there is anything in us, Lord, where we have spoken out of place where we have desired things that are not godly, that are not of you. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us, but that you would reveal to us that need to repent and confess. Not out of legalism, God, but out of a desire to please you, but out of a desire as well to be Christ-like. Let us, Lord, be your people, and let people see Jesus in us. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Paul here reminding us in chapter 5 how it is to walk in love, right? First verses 1 and 2, Paul emphasizes here in these last couple of chapters... Of Ephesians 5, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he, he, he writes to the Ephesian church, he writes to us today, and God speaks through these words, and, and the focus here is for us to imitate Christ. That's what I want us to remember as we go through chapter 5. Chapter 5 and chapter 6 can look like a list of legal do's and don'ts. And if you look at these verses out of context, if you look at them in chunks and sections, you know, like we're looking today of how to avoid immorality and impurity. As we continue on, uh, there, there are the, the, the classic passages of how to live as husband and wife and how to live as children with your family. We look at these passages too often as a legalistic thing. And I want us to remember how the chapter 5 begins. It is a call from Paul... Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to teach the church how to imitate Christ. So everything that we read here in these chapters, I want you to, if you can, remember how Paul's teaching starts. It's not a you better or else. And he's not shaking his finger and listing rules to follow as if the Mosaic Law was being reintroduced. He is actually using these examples of how to imitate Christ, how to walk in love. Amen? So let's take a look here in verses 3 through 5. Paul is now laying out the practical application of what imitating Christ looks like. Verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. That verse right there we could preach several sermons on. Paul is saying, as we walk in Christ, as we walk in love together, imitating Christ, being Christ-like ourselves, there is absolutely no room for these things. There's no room for immorality. There's no room for impurity. There's no room for being covetous. Big words. But how many of us wrestle with some of these things? How many of us wrestle with coveting things? How many of us wrestle with Immoral actions and immoral thoughts. How many of us wrestle with impurities? This is pretty straightforward. Paul says, There is no room for this. Don't even let it be named among you. Now, this can bring out some guilt in us. This can bring out some, I'm not living up to this, so I'm not worthy of being named a Christian. But I want to encourage you today as we look through this passage, as as we listen to what God has to say here, let us remember that he's pointing out what needs to be pointed out so that we can return to Christ often and say, Please, dear Lord, forgive me. That's important here. Because chapter 5 is written in the context here of worship. Worship as service to Christ. Chapter 5 and chapter 6 here are the practical applications of what it looks like to imitate Christ as an act of worship. As we serve each other in the church, as we serve Christ, as we imitate how Christ serves us, the church, through his sacrifice, this is what we're looking at. What is it in our lives that we are worshiping more than Jesus Christ? That's what we're seeing here in verse 3. We can worship immorality. We can worship impurities. We worship things that we desire that we don't have and we covet. And that right there is setting up the truth that really what we're doing is we're not worshiping Christ by imitating him. We are worshiping these things instead. Amen? So Paul here is laying out what, it look, what does it look like to imitate Christ? You see, imitating Christ, first of all, requires that we are regenerated. Another term for that is being born again, being made new in Christ. It requires, first of all, that Jesus himself changes us as the Holy Spirit comes into our lives at the moment of repentance and salvation. We then become imitators of Christ. And that's a lifetime process. That's not an instant change. This idea of sanctification in Scripture means that we we have an entire lifetime of living out what it looks like to be Christ-like and to be sanctified as we become more holy in the image of Christ. So first of all, in order to even look like these things, in order for these things to not be proper among us, we have to be called saints, right? Look here at verse 3. He says... Not even being named among you as is proper among saints. So Paul is writing directly here to the Christians. He says, if you are a saint in Jesus Christ, if you are claiming the name of Christ as a Christian, there is no room for this stuff. Imitating Christ here means avoiding sinful behavior. We avoid it. That doesn't mean that we're going to be 100% successful and never sin again. Because the life of the Christian is that we are not perfect, but we do have a Savior who is, and He is making us new every single day. Right? The idea that we are aware of our failures and we come to Christ, and I would argue daily, and say, please forgive me again. And we seek to avoid these things because our minds are being regenerated to where we no longer desire these things of immorality and impurity. It's a lifetime of change. You see, those who are redeemed in Christ are actually holy as Christ is holy. That's biblical. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, is also repeated in 1 Peter chapter 1, where in the Levitical law, God himself speaking to his chosen people, Israel, says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. If we are God's people, then the, the, the idea in the old Mosaic laws of God's chosen people must be holy because God himself is holy. That same command applies to the Christians and to the church. We are called to be holy. That's why Peter, uh, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, repeats this call from Leviticus that God himself expects. There is an expectation of his people, of his church. Because God himself is holy, we are to consecrate ourselves and we are to be holy as well. That's a pretty high calling, isn't it? You might know what, I mean, holiness. I mean, think about it. I mean, that's a very deep concept. Who is holy? None but God himself. His son, Jesus Christ, being the very likeness of God, the very imitation of God, the very God himself in the flesh. He was holy and pure. Amen and if we claim the name of Christ we likewise there is an expectation that we should be holy as well. Now, this is not a sermon calling us into holiness living. We are to be holy and therefore our lives we live lives of holiness. But this is not a message that the fundamentalist aspect of our of our faith has in some ways their intention was right and calling people to holiness but unfortunately the fundamentalist approach to this is can become very legalistic to where no one can live up to the expectation that's not God's message here there is an expectation that is beyond our reach to be holy but how is that even possible only through Jesus Christ himself so all of this points back to Jesus we have there is an expectation for those who are redeemed in Christ to be holy But those in Christ also realize there's no way to be there without Jesus himself. So you see how this all points right back to our Savior, Jesus Christ. This strengthens our faith in Christ rather than trying to strengthen our faith in ourselves to practice something we can't do. You see where we're going? This is what Paul's message is here. We cannot ignore the fact that God himself expects his people to be holy. Because if we are God's people, then we must be like God. We must be like His Son, Jesus Christ. And we must be holy to the limit that we can do it. But we don't do it under our own power. God does not expect us to. He says, I expect you to do it in the power of my Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? You see, these things that he lists here in verse 3. Immorality. Impurity. Covetousness. This sexual immorality, this impurity, this desire for things that are beyond us. There is no room for these things because these things are profane and they are unclean. Matter of fact, they are more unclean than uncleanliness itself. They can only disgrace the Christian. They can only disgrace the name of Christ. They can only disgrace the church. If Jesus has sanctified us through faith and through his blood, then we are holy. Because we who, through faith, are bought by the blood of Christ, if our faith is in that blood sacrifice, then we're seen as holy. We are seen as righteous because that's God's command. That's his way. He covers the sin with the blood, amen, and if we embrace these things, this sexual immorality, this covetousness, this impurity, these things that are so profane, what is it first of all, what does it mean to be profane that's what we've got to think about here. Why is it that that throughout Scripture From the Old Testament even now into the New Testament, we see this continued repeated theme of avoiding certain things. This immorality, this, this uh, sexual impurity, this covetousness. Why is that such a theme? Number one is because we as fallen creatures are prone to this kind of distortion. Somehow we can't get away from it. It's there. What does it mean to be profane? To profane something means to take something that has an original form and you distort it into something that is unrecognizable. You distort it into something that is appealing, but if you look at it in truthfulness, it is actually a false image of what the original is. That's what profane means. So if, if these things, the sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness is something that is profane, then therefore it must be a distortion of something that God originally intended. And this is why he's saying avoid these things. So what is it that it is distorting? Let's look at verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 and 5 will help us see that. Verse 4, Paul says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Now, I think guys are probably more guilty of this profane, crude talk than ladies are. Now, I may be wrong, unless you ladies are hiding it really, really well. Yes, this idea of crude talk, of profane language, filthiness, I don't know about you, but when I'm around people who are who are crude and, and foul in their talk and in what they're laughing about, I just don't feel comfortable around that anymore. You know, when I was a young, foolish teenager or a young man, I mean, perhaps I, I didn't participate in it particularly, but I still sat around it because I wanted to be accepted. But there's something about the, the mind of the Christian. If when we become more and more like Christ, when we hear these things There's something about it that just doesn't fit. Right? Crude talk. Crude joking. Filthiness. Filthy language. Here's the thing. Words that come out of our mouths originate as thoughts in our mind. You know, so so the excuse of I didn't mean it when I said it. Yeah, you did. You thought it. Now, you may not have meant to say it. It may have come out And you thought you were thinking it, but you said it instead. But you meant it. Because all words begin as language in the mind. You ever talk to yourself in your mind? Right? See, we have language that comes out verbally through our mouth, but we also have language on the inside. Our inner self also speaks. And that's an indicator that we're thinking something. And so when we see here in verse 4, when Paul is saying no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, he's really implying, now this is is evidence of who you are in your inner person, your inner man, your inner self. When you speak this way, it really reveals who you truly are. And if you are truly Christian, if you're truly in Christ, what comes out of your mouth should be edifying and Christ-like, not foolish and crude and foul. One of the things that this leads to, and and much of our comedy really embraces this, the idea of sarcasm, right? Anybody ever had some sarcastic jokes? We may, like, joke each other in, in, in a friendly sarcasm. You know, I think maybe there's a place where sarcasm is a healthy laughter amongst people who really love each other. And we're just really trying to show that we love you by cutting you down a little bit. Now, for guys especially, I mean, we've got to toughen up the boys as they grow up. We've got to teach them to be men, so we cut them down. And if it's in love, then it's going to be a little bit sarcastic, right? Showing their weaknesses so that they toughen up a little bit. I think there's some place for that that is healthy, but... What Paul is writing about here is a caution and a warning that this can become so crude and, and bad that it's not even Christ-like itself. Sarcasm, then, is ungodly. Traditionally in the, in the Christian church, in, in theology and in doctrine, this has been a major point of contention in sarcastic thinking and sarcastic talk. We don't go there. If we can't speak boldly and honestly about the truth of the gospel without resorting to sarcasm, then there's something wrong. Amen? If if the truth of the gospel is powerful and impactful, then I don't think sarcasm is necessary there. Now, let, let's think about this. I don't, I don't know if you've followed Christian comedy over the last few uh, years, Uh Comedy tends to really love sarcasm, right? Now, I think uh, self critical comedy, where you're being sarcastic about your own failings, can be a healthy thing to kind of reveal how bad you really are and you laugh at yourself about your failures so that you kind of help improve yourself. But when it comes to sarcasm toward others for the sole intent of putting them down, I don't think there's any room for that in the Gospels. I don't think there's any room for that in the church. You see, while it is possible to laugh and make jokes in a good way, this this idea of of crude talk and and joking, right, Paul actually mentions crude joking, crude joking. There is a place where that crude joking can quickly degrade into a sense of harmful sarcasm. If the intent of your joke is to insult somebody for the sake of laughter, what are you really doing? How do you value the person that you are intentionally insulting through a crude joke? You're actually devaluing them as a human being. You're devaluing them as a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And and so you're devaluing the image of God in them. Can we say amen to that or oh me? Now, this is something that takes a little bit of maturity and growth to overcome. This is something that immature people will do because laughter and jokes often come in a sense of insecurity. You try to cover up your insecurity by joking. And and if your joke is centered around intentional malicious harm towards someone else, you're trying to... Put someone else down in order to raise yourself up. There's no room for that in the church according to this text. I want to keep emphasizing that there's no room for this in the church according to this text. No room for it. It doesn't belong. I see crude jokes here. uh, and, And I'm trying to be cautious of the words I use because we have some mixed company here. Uh, with some little children, and I want to make sure I don't say things that parents are going to have to explain later. But you know, crude jokes, you know, what I'm talking about adults, crude jokes of a particular nature can be prone to sarcasm. And what are we doing? We're belittling the other person of another gender for the sake of a crude joke around the fellas. And I hate, to say, I hate to say it, but I'm beginning to see more and more of this amongst the, the female population in popular culture, in, in radio, and in TV. I don't know if, ladies, you were always doing this and you were just keeping it hidden or suddenly it's becoming new. I don't know what's going on. But it seems like young ladies are considered powerful and strong women if they can cut down the men in a particular manner. That is crude and profane. Are you noticing that? I notice also here in this, in this age of hashtag me too. It's men are being held accountable, rightly so, for their crude jokes and their belittling of women. I think that's a right thing to pay attention to because there was a time where men were held accountable to righteous behavior and honorable behavior. And no, you don't talk about women that way. But it seems to me the women are, it's, it's open game for women to talk about men that way. Have you noticed that? You know, if, if it's wrong, it's wrong. If there's no room for it in the, in the church, there's no room for it in the church. Crude jokes. They are prone to sarcasm and belittling of people. And Paul says here there's no room for it in the church. Instead, what does Paul encourage here at the end of verse 4? He says, "There let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be what? Thanksgiving. Rather than belittling someone for the sake of a joke and for the sake of a laughter... We give thanks for them. We thank God for them. We give thanks to God for each other. We give thanks to God for His Son, Jesus Christ, and how He's not only saved me, but oh, He has saved you too. We are in the image of God. We are created that way. And we do not belittle that image. When we belittle each other, we're belittling God. You see the point? Instead, within the church, according to Paul's words here, instead there should be thanksgiving. We give thanks for Jesus Christ and his forgiveness of our sin and his sacrifice and his resurrection. And we give thanks for each other as each, as each and every one of us have likewise been redeemed and made new in Christ. That's worthy of thanksgiving. That's worthy of praise. It is not worthy of, of, of sarcasm and belittling. Amen. Amen. That's what Paul's writing about here. If we are in Christ, if we are walking in love, as Paul is encouraging us to here in verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, if we are imitators of God as Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, and if Christ is a fragrant offering for us, we imitate that. Let's be fragrant rather than stinking. Let's be fragrant rather than repugnant. Let's be fragrant in our language, in our ideas, in our behavior, in our treatment of each other. Let's give thanks to God for each other. Let's give thanks that our fellow brother and sister has been redeemed. Let's give thanks that Jesus has provided forgiveness even for those who have not embraced it yet. They're not part of the church but there is the possibility that God may be changing them through us. And how can someone come to know Jesus Christ and repent of their sin if we're constantly belittling each other and using sarcasm as humor? Now that doesn't mean we have to be stiff, dull Christians who just are offended at every joke. I mean, there's 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 a balance here. We've got to have a light-hearted attitude. Amen. It's okay to have a sense of humor. I mean, have you ever been around those people who just can't take a joke, and every time you try to say a joke, they're all offended, and they're, oh, I'm so holy, there's no room for a joke. You don't want to be around them, do you? I mean, there's a room there to have fun. Rhonda and I had the blessing of going to a wedding last night for some dear, dear friends of ours. And you just have to know this family. How many boys have they got? Five boys and two girls. Okay, five boys and two girls. The boys are now of age of marriage, and they're beginning to get married off. And let me tell you what, I have never, uh, this is the second wedding we've been to for this family. And I'm telling you what, they have fun. They are Christians, they love the Lord, they love each other, and there's that healthy joking around amongst the family, and it comes out in the wedding ceremony. I'm telling you what, it was so fun to watch how they loved each other, but they laughed at each other at the same time. There is a healthiness there. And I'll tell you, here's what was so funny in the wedding. The, the, the young man getting married, he's 26 years old, and everybody in the family had given up on him ever finding a girlfriend, much less a wife. He was just, he was a sweet young man. He is, he is just the sweetest young man. You talk to him, he is just as godly and as Christ-like as any young 26-year-old you'd ever meet and he finally, God, God, God finally sent him a godly wife. And, at the, and, and ladies, this, you know, if this happens at your wedding, you young ladies, when you get married, just go with it because it was so fun. The father of this young man was the one officiating the wedding, first of all. And when it came time for them to commit to each other and for the father to kind of give a blessing over him, he looks at his son and he says, I never thought this day would happen. We all gave up hope that you would ever have a girlfriend, much less a wife, right there in the middle of the ceremony. And he said, I, uh, There's a lot of people who owe me money because we, we had bets. We had, way, we had uh, odds about whether or not you would or would not ever get married. And there's a lot of people who owe me money. And every groomsman had to walk up and give him money out of their pocket. They scripted it into the ceremony. It was so fun. So there's room for laughter. There's room for, you know, healthy, loving sarcasm amongst people who love each other. But what Paul is writing about here is, let's make sure that it is healthy family humor, not ridiculing, sarcastic, belittling language and ideas. I mean, there's a balance there. You can, probably, you can go too far in a joke to where you, you ever had, you ever Thought that you were being funny and you thought that you were being loving, but then had to go back and apologize because the person was so offended. You know, see, there's, there's, there's this attitude of loving each other rather than belittling each other that Paul's talking about. But I don't think Paul's calling the church to be sourpusses and so holier than now stiff that they can't laugh, but there is a balance there. There's a limit there that he's cautioning. Let us give thanksgiving for each other. If, if in the joking we're thanking people, we're giving thanks for you because we love you and we're laughing with you, I think that's healthy. But if we're laughing at someone for their, at their expense, I think that's the limit. And that's where it can become crude. And that's where it can become foul. And that's where we don't go. Amen. There's no room for it in the church. Now in verse 5, Paul is closing out here this concept. And we have to remember that what he's reminding us here is that we're imitating Christ. Instead of being sexually immoral, instead of being impure and covetous and foul and filthy and foolish, he says in verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So verse 5 here is the closing warning explaining why these things are not necessary and they do not have room in the kingdom. Because immoral persons have no inheritance in God. If you are immoral in your character, if you are immoral in your thinking, if you are immoral in your behavior, according to what Paul says here, you have no room in the kingdom of God. Now, that's a stern warning. Those who claim the name of Jesus Christ have been called to a special place. They have been called as a special people. God himself has redeemed us through the blood of his son. And that was a very expensive price. And it's a very precious gift that we receive. That forgiveness of our sin. If that is the case, and if we are being made new in Christ, then the, then any kind of immoral thought, immoral action is being purged from our thinking and our behavior. Do you know what, you know what morality is? The idea of being moral is the question of how ought we to live. When we, question, when we have questions of morality, what is right, what is wrong, how do we think, how do we behave? It's not we're trying to list a, a, a list of do's and don'ts. In other words, it's questions of, okay, how ought we to live? You ever ask yourself some of those questions? If what I'm getting ready to do, is it right, is it wrong, should I, shouldn't I? We do it all the time. And as a Christian who is made new in Christ, we have an expectation of morality. There is a particular way we ought to live. And if we are opposed to that, if we are contrary to that, then we are immoral. Immorality is living the way we should not live. Being who we should not be. Being moral is that we are being who we ought to be in Christ. You see the difference? And so immoral persons who are not living the way they ought to live, they are not being who they ought to be, there is no room for them in the kingdom. They will receive no inheritance from God whatsoever. That's what Paul says here. Anyone who does these things. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this. I think he's pretty direct here. For you may be certain of this. This is a guarantee according to Paul. That everyone who is sexually immoral. Or impure. Or who is covetous. Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And God. Now why is that? Because think about this. When you are coveting something. What are you coveting? What is that? That means you desire it to possess it for yourself. When we covet something, we look at what someone else has and we become jealous. We look at what someone else has and we want it for ourselves because they have it, I don't, give it to me. We see this in the, in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, right? Thou shalt not covet. Look at these lists of sins that Paul is talking about. Sexual immorality, impurity. You see, these sinful vices, if consistent, will shut off the Christian from God's kingdom. And all of these things that he lists here are actually forms of idolatry. If you are sexually immoral, you are actually worshiping and desiring something contrary to God. If you are impure in your thoughts or your actions, you are actually worshiping something else other than God. If you are covetous toward other people, what I mean, what, think about this: sexual immorality, impurity, crude joking. What is it? We're actually desiring someone in a way that God does not want us to desire them. You see where we're going? Whenever we are looking upon someone else in a way that God has not designed for us to look upon them, if we desire them in a way that is not in alignment with God's design and in his creation, then we are actually worshiping an idol of our own making and we are distorting. We are taking what God has given us and we are profaning it into something that is not what God created. And it becomes an idol. And it becomes a way of impurity and sin. The other thing here in verse 5, and this covetousness that we're talking about can also be a form of greed. So we think about greed when we think about money or possessions of, of objects, Right? I am greedy. I want what I don't have. I want to spend money I don't have. I want or maybe I'm greedy because I am making money and I want to make more and more of it. But can greed also be applied to how we think about another human being? Can we be greedy and desire another person? When we do that, we are not in God's will. What is God's will and his design for two people to want to be with each other it's a, it's, a, it's a relationship of mutual respect not of possession and if we think if we look upon another person in an immoral way we do not look upon that person with an attitude that God wants, or, or expects. We are looking upon that other person as a covetous possession for me. We, ter- we turn a human being who is made in the image of God into an object for my pleasure and consumption. That becomes idolatry. A classic Christian work by Saint Augustine called the Confessions is a is a I don't want to say it's a novel because it's not it's actually a it's a long book that Augustine wrote in the 4th century confessing his very sin in this manner and how God himself redeemed Augustine through the blood of Christ and restored Augustine into the exact alignment as God intended him to be it's a book that i wish that someone had given me to read when i was a young teenage boy i wish that it was a book that i i think everyone needs to read even young ladies every christian needs to read augustine's confessions it is actually considered the very first autobiography in western literature it became the model for an autobiography that we still use today. And Augustine just speaks about his wrestling with these immoral behaviors and these impure thoughts and actions to the point that and he confesses in there and he, adv- he admits in there that what he was doing he was taking what God intended and he distorted it for his own guilty pleasure and he was worshipping something other than God because he took God's image and made an idol for himself for his own desires and it Tore him to pieces to the point that when Augustine in book eight of, of the of the confessions he you read about his conversion from this life of immorality, and God changes him and creates in him a repentant heart and and then augustine what is augustine Augustine was considered the number one thinker of the church other than Paul Augustine became the foundation of much of Christian thinking especially about the Trinity Father Son and Holy Spirit Augustine's confessions shows us that you can overcome these sinful ways of thinking and behaving but it only happens through the forgiveness of God God's Holy Spirit changing us and bringing forgiveness. We see this in, in David, King David in the Old Testament. Much of, of the Psalms that we read are David's praise to the Lord for loving him and forgiving him and changing him. Psalm 51, we read these words, the, the classic words from David in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O Lord. So what Paul is writing about here in Ephesians chapter 5 is this. If you are made new in Christ, then we have the song in our spirit toward God. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord. If these ideas are in you, there is no room for them in the church. There is no room for them in the kingdom. Now, does that mean that you are cast out with no hope? No. (laughs) I think more importantly, while Paul's writing about here, he's writing directly to the saints. And he's saying he's he's warning them, but he's also using this to point to the faith and, and the salvation they have in Jesus Christ. There is always hope and the life of the Christian is if I am thinking this way, if I'm behaving this way, I have a Savior who saved me that I can always return to and I can always pour my heart out to. That's what Paul's writing about here. As we prepare ourselves today for communion, the first Sunday of the month here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, we always come to the table together As a church. And we remember what our Savior has done for us. His death and His resurrection paved the way for our salvation. Our renewal as Christians. Taking the words of Paul here. I don't want us to come into the communion time at the table with an attitude of guilt. I don't want us to come to the table with an attitude of, oh, no, I have just been taken to the woodshed. I want us to come to the Lord's table with an attitude of thanksgiving, as Paul tells us in what we just read. Instead of these vile thoughts and actions, we have language and a heart of what? Of thanksgiving. Amen? As uh, Caleb comes on forward... I always read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 at this time. The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church about the importance of the Lord's table and coming together as his church around this table. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. There's that word profane again. We do not want to distort the purity of what God has done through his son. He says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Coming to the Lord's table is not an act of salvation, but it is an act of remembrance, it's an act of examination. It's an act of remembering where our faith is placed. Is your faith placed in the blood of Jesus Christ or is your faith placed in your own efforts to be good, to be moral? If your, if your attitude is, I'm going to make myself moral and make myself worthy of God's attention, then that is a misplaced attitude. But if your attitude is, I am a sinner in need of salvation, and we place our thoughts and our heart in what Christ has done, that's what this time at the table is for. To remind us of where our faith rests. Not in ourself, but in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. As Caleb begins to play. I want you to take this time as a time of reflection. Not of your sins particularly, but of where is your faith? Are you trusting Christ or are you trying to trust yourself or something else? Let this time be a time where the Lord really loves you. Let him just pour out his heart and his spirit into you and let you remember that Jesus loves you. So much so that he died for you. Amen.